weighing all of the optical fibers um, from the, where the telescope is to to other places to, to the central processing facilities where we can actually like do something with the data and then it has to you know be transported around the world to the astronomers so that they can do science with it so it's just there's a lot that you wouldn't necessarily think about when it comes to astronomy that that has to be taken into account when, when building something on such a large scale. So can you tell us a little bit about the telescope itself? You say it's yeah. built a, um, a square, yeah, so a, a square kilometer array, yeah. and I didn't know whether that's meant like a bunch of telescopes in one kilometer or a massive, massive dish, mm -hmm. but it's over two different land masses. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically. Some of the, the science questions that we have remaining are, you know, we want to see back in time as close to the Big Bang as possible. And in order to do that, it's calculated that you need an aperture that can collect light. Um, that's basically a square kilometer in size. And obviously, you can't physically build a dish that size. Um, the local telescope, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's 76 meters in size, and it's, in size and it's already huge and impressive, and building anything bigger than that just gets really complicated and impossible. Mm. Um, so what we do in radio interferometry is we, we make several smaller dishes um, to, to get the amount of collecting area that we need, and that's cheaper, it's more practical, we can space them out, and that allows us to to achieve different um, spatial resolution, spatial scales in the sky. Um, so basically what we're going to do is we're going to build hundreds, thousands of dishes and dipoles, and together they'll have a collecting area of a square kilometer. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the plan, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, other people's big data pales in comparison to, to your big data. Yeah, so I think astronomy and particle physics um, are really leading the way when it comes to big data. And so I think a lot of the challenges that get solved in order for us to do our science does end up trickling into, into tech and industry. And that's why, especially with the Square Kilometer Array, there are lots of ties with industry um, trying to work together to solve some of these challenges. Um, one of my favorite things to say is that um, 1990s radio astronomy is what brought about Wi-Fi. So like, just think about like all of the new tech that's going to come around from building that Square Kilometer Array. Yeah. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so recently, astrophysics had a massive popular exposure due to the breakthrough with the imaging of the black hole. Um, and for this achievement, they used many non-focused quantum Python libraries, including NumPy, Pandas, SciPy, AstroPy. Um, so what languages or libraries um, or software do you commonly use in your work? Yeah, so I guess I'm quite nervous coming onto Pi Data Manchester because I feel like such an imposter when it comes to coding. I think I'm absolutely rubbish at it. I was never formally trained. I mean, I took I mean, I took one semester of a C plus plus course in undergrad and knew I wasn't going to do anything with it, so just immediately forgot about it. Not first language. It really put me off, if I'm honest. Um, and so after that, during the PhD, you know, I would. You know, kind of pack together some Stack Overflow queries to kind of get my questions answered, and like I would pick up a bit of uh, Python here and there, and then that Python's the one that I found like I quite liked the most. Um, it was more intuitive. A lot of people were using it. There's a lot of documentation there, and then um, especially with the astronomy community, people started developing um, modules and packages and, and developing AstroPy, um, which they used in, in the paper. Um, uh, to get a black hole image along, along with all, all the 
these other ones that you mentioned. And so even though Python is the language that I primarily use, because I never really took a formal class or course or anything, I just kind of like, I wouldn't really consider myself a Pythonista, and I don't know if that's just imposter syndrome or not, but, um, but Python is definitely my favorite. I recently took an introduction to R course because I know that's really big and booming in, in tech right now, and I kind of want to see what it's all about. Um, I've got friends who use it, and the plots and the charts that they make are just absolutely stunning. So I don't know if that's a bit of like a cheeky reason for doing one of those over, but data visualization, I think, is really important. And if it gets my attention, maybe it'll get other people's attention. But so I'm keen to learn a bit more R. But in general, I just I like using Jupyter notebooks. I think they're really important in academia. Like I think it's really good to show exactly how you achieved um, a result, how you did your analysis, and it's really important for other people to be able to interact with that analysis and run it and check it. And I think it's really important when it comes to reviewing work as well. It just makes it much easier for a referee um, or a journal to check to check your analysis and make sure everything's okay. And that feeds back into reproducibility and open science, which I'm really interested in. So right now, at the minute, we have all of these data pipelines that uh, different folks have written, mostly in Python. There are a lot of Python um, modules and packages that people have written and thrown together to, to do this um, like data processing and imaging and calibration from the telescope. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get some of those into a Jupyter notebook so that they can be used for teaching, um, so that it's easy to see how to run the pipeline, and then also getting that stuff to run um, in the cloud um, so that in the future, when we can no longer do stuff on our own laptops and desktops, we have that system in place. So, um, yeah. And that's where containers come in. So I'm learning a lot about containers and Docker and Kubernetes and having so much fun with that. Yeah, yeah that's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah, that's all. I mean, <clears throat> I was going back to your point about um, being like a, a not, not a proper Python coder. I think probably most people feel like that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm also self-taught for the, the, for the majority of everything that I do. Um, I think coming to industry helps to formalize some mm -hmm. of my more work. I'm writing tests. Oh, yeah. Things. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think most people, like, most people. I don't think I know all have imposter syndrome, and none of them have a coding background, and they just, like, overtake in, like, the craziest ways. I don't know if it's because of the imposter syndrome that they feel like such a desire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it seems to be really common. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm same with Bowen too. So, um, learning to code your language, like, every time any formal training, I think that's how a lot of what people get into data science. And I'm regular software engineer. I don't think the majority of people are actually, you know, computer science grads. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's this um, consortium called the Carpentries. Yeah. And they've put together all of these courses and they're starting to introduce them into, into definitely the University of Manchester, but, but all over the world, um, where they teach Python in a more formalized way and R and using Git and, yeah. and Bash and stuff like that. And it, it's really, really helpful and important, um, I think, to get especially younger students in there um, as soon as possible because, man, like all of that stuff I wish I had at the start of my PhD and now I look back. So much time. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I'm horrified when I think about like, you, yeah, I don't even want to think about it. From what I've heard about those courses, um, it's been really useful and they teach you the things that you wouldn't necessarily learn. Because when you learn programming, you think, 
okay, I need to learn Python. You don't necessarily think about stuff like you mentioned, like your mm. like Russian test, like actually what best practices right. around whatever what you're doing, whether that's making production software, how you produce a bill analysis, mm. and it's not easy to do. Yeah. So yes, have a training for for that. That's a good shout out for them. Um, something else I really enjoy actually is using GitHub. Um, so sort of even beyond the version control aspect of it, I really like using it for project management. Mm. I think it's really handy because it's easy to share what you're working on. It's easy to like keep track of issues and um, keep track like of feedback that you get on it and to incorporate that. Um, so that's one thing I really like using GitHub for as well. Yeah, I I, I prefer it to Trello. Yeah. Reachability, you recently presented at TEDx Macclesfield on reachability crisis and open data. Um, and just last weekend, well, not when this goes out, but um, <laughs> when I was recording last weekend, uh, you participated in a Blue Dot Festival at Judgeville Bank. Mm -hmm. So please tell us more about these two events. Yeah, so I sort of passed on a huge milestone, huge personal milestones for myself. Um, I'm absolutely terrified of public speaking. It just scares me. And I don't know if that's like the manifestation of imposter syndrome because you're, you're up there, you're telling people stuff and you're just like, are the words that are coming out of my mouth, do they make sense? I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm so worried about saying the wrong thing. And it's not how it should be. Like you're, you're up there because you have opinions, you have insights, and people just want to hear that. Um, so with TEDx Macclesfield, like, um, like the TED brand is so huge and so well known that it really, it really loomed over me for a few months leading up to it. It just felt like an enormous pressure, like something that I really had to get right. Um, but the reason I ended up accepting to do it and not just, you know, cowarding away from it is that I sort of told myself if I can do this, then I can literally do anything. Really monotonic about it. Like, I didn't really 
experience any emotion with it, but within the talk, I do get quite vulnerable and and I talk about some bad experiences that I've had, which is why I'm so passionate about open science. But then on the day of the talk, and I got on stage and there were all those people, I got really emotional. <laughs> I about lost it. Um, and so it was really kind of amusing because they cut some of that out of the final edit, but it was it was a really powerful experience and something I'm very happy with. Yeah, and when I watched it, it made me feel emotional. <laughs> and it was good because, like, it just, it just, and you, you can say so much more how, how, um, how important this issue is and how it does impact people in a real way. So, um, I liked it. <laughs> it's something to give you a lot of support as well. Yeah, they absolutely give you a lot of support. And I know there's a lot of, um, kind of pushback because, um, TED speakers don't get paid or anything, even though you put in all of that effort. But we did get loads of support from the organizers, so that I, I can't, I really appreciated that. So, how did it come about? Did they, did they did they approach you? Yeah, so um, it turns out one of the members of Her Plus Data, um, the meetup group that I organized, she actually recommended me to one of the organizers because they said they were like looking for a scientist, so they didn't really know. Uh, really how to find one or how to get in touch with maybe somebody from Dr. Frank, which has that close tie with Macclesfield. Um, but yeah, one of the members of the meetup group put my name forward and then they sent me an email and we had a phone call and I kind of initially did recommend a few of my colleagues first, um, but then they were just like, okay, well, you know, what would you talk about? And I'm like, well, if I were to talk, I would talk about open science and stuff like that. And just, yeah, just went from there. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because you were able to do that, you knew you'd be able to bring up. Yeah, it's so funny because everybody said that too. I was getting so, I was getting so nervous ahead of Blue Dot. And he's like, you've done a TEDx talk. What are you afraid of? And I was just like, that was a room of 100 people. And I've just been told that the tent is speaking and has a capacity of like 1,400, um, which is absolutely massive. And as I said, I'm terrified of public speaking people. And you just, you know, scale that up quite a, a fair bit. Um, but no, Blue Dot, it was, it was absolutely incredible. So, so what is Blue Dot? So, so Blue Dot Festival is a combination of music and science and art and culture um, in a festival at Java Bank Observatory um, out in Cheshire. And so this year the headlining bands were New Order, Hot Chip, and Kraftwerk. Last year it was like Future Island and Chemical Brothers and The Flaming Lips. So they always have phenomenal lineup of music, and I have like no idea how they find it. But it's really amazing, and they're all performing under the huge 76 meter level telescope. So it's just a really impressive um, site for a festival. Um, and what I love about Blue Dot is they actually hold science up to the same level as all of these bands. So we did have these enormous science um, talk tents. Um, where people from Java Bank gave talks, they had Libby Jackson, who's head of the UK um, Space Exploration Program, give a talk. They've had a lot of famous authors. They had uh, the first uh, British astronaut give a talk. So, like, they're able to attract like the best of the best in the industry, and just to even be involved in any way at all, I was just really humbled. Um, because the past two years, I was volunteering at the at the stand for the square kilometer array, so basically talking to the public about the telescope that we hope to build. Um, and then, yeah, just to get invited to speak this year, I was like, oh yeah, that'll 
be nice. They'll be in a nice small stage. You know, it'll be my first time. I'm sure they'll just ease me into it. They've never seen me speak before. Boom! Mission control stage. Have been before 1,500 people. Even tripled in size since last year. And I'm just like, do you want me to what now? Um, but I propose to give a talk on the violent birth of stars. Um, which is just a, a general talk on star formation that I've been giving since my PhD. I used to give it out at Stonesink Observatory in Dublin um, to maybe a room full of 30, 40 people maximum, mostly children. Um, so <laughs> scaling that up for Blue Dot Festival um, was really interesting. Uh, I had a 45-minute slot. And I was like, if I could just, you know, waffle on for about 40 minutes, limit the questions I get to about five minutes, I'll be fine. It'll be great. Because you're always kind of worried you're going to get asked a question by some, you know, person, or maybe a flat earther or something, because Blue Dog Festival does track, like, people from all over the place. Um, and so you just don't know what people are going to ask you. Um, but... I got about halfway through my talk and I realized I'd been talking really fast and I'd only been up on stage for about 15 minutes. So I was just like, oh wow. So I, I slowed down a bit, but in the end I was done talking after half an hour. <laughs> 15 solid minutes of questions. But it was, also, it was really nice. The crowd was really wonderful. They asked really good questions. Um, I did notice we were getting quite a few questions from, you know, predominantly uh, men. So we opened up the floor. I was just like, are there any, you know, women or children who have any questions? And then I started getting more questions from them. And quite a few children finally had the confidence to ask some questions. And it was just, it was really nice. That's cool. You had lovely, great feedback from Twitter as well. It was really lovely um, just to see, like, moms tweeting about how, you know, their kids were inspired and they were, they felt empowered to, to ask those questions. And I think that that is the point of Blue Dot Festival, and that's the whole point of public outreach. Um, there's no point in me just going up there talking at a crowd of people. Like you need that you need that engagement otherwise it's for nothing. So it's really nice. Yeah. I mean it must be fantastic for children to feel like they can speak to you know we um, famous scientists here know all the kind of stuff about um, math and physics and physics who involved enough to be talking in front of fourteen hundred people or whatever. That's not something that children get any kind of opportunity to do. Um, that sounds fantastic. And the time behind you is massive. It was so huge. I, I, tried, I tried to crack a joke in the middle of the talk because I, I showed a picture of myself um, at one of the telescopes processing some of the data. And I had just been up all night observing. And on that huge screen, you could really see the bags in my eyes. And I was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> I thought that was amazing. But yeah, it was humongous. The real life of the. Capcom Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds and Manchester, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do, they understand what their candidates do, and what their clients need, and they really care about making sure everybody involved is happy. Capcom sponsors PyData Manchester, PyData Edinburgh, Mancamel, Scottmel, and are a beating heart in the data community. Check out their website in the show notes. Without companies like Capcom Associates, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Yeah, that's really amazing. Uh, this brings us, well, kind of, um, to the work you do with um, Foster and um, Open Science Training. Um, one of these workshops, this is Foster or in other case, 
um, FLS TDR. Um, there'll be more information in the show notes if you're interested. Um, with all the things we've been talking about as well. Um, but um, yeah, what does this workshop look like? Um, is it hiring people on board? Is the importance of vehicle science? Um, tell us more about Right, so Foster um, was an EU project that basically developed resources for, for training folks in open science. And so part of it was to train trainers, to train people in open science, and other parts of it were to, to develop resources like a handbook um, and courses, stuff like that. And so we did a boot camp for the trainers, and so um, we learned all about, you know, um, developing learning objectives, how to structure a course, how to structure a workshop, etc. And so the one we did, my group did in the in the boot camp is we basically did a Jupyter notebook workshop and we had like ten minutes to do it and, and that was really cool. It was basically demonstrating the importance of, of using an open notebook um, in your research and analysis. But what I my favorite workshop to give is actually on GitHub. On Git and GitHub because I think it has a very steep learning curve. I think it's difficult for people to kind of get started with it because there's all of this jargon involved, you know, pull requests, git push, git pull, fork, etc. And so the first thing I do is we do some jargon busting and we break all of that down. Um, and we do like an interface tour and just show people, you know, the website, what's involved in a repository, how to get started with a project do a hello world example, and then um, my favorite thing to do is to actually get people to build a website on GitHub because, you know, it's free to host a website there, there are loads of templates on GitHub, and it, it, it allows you to really demonstrate a full project all in one and then getting something out at the end. So you can, like, fork somebody else's uh, website template, edit it, push full, etc., um, and then at the end of it you have maybe your online portfolio, your online CV of, like, your projects. Um, so it's really handy. So that's my personal favorite workshop to give. I've given it a few times now. Um, the next one that I'm developing is one on containerization. And I'm kind of nervous about it because it's very techy. <laughs> um, so like I use containers a lot, uh, both Docker and Singularity, um, which is the HTC version, effectively. Um, and but there's a lot of yeah, technicalities within using containers that I'm not particularly fluent in. So I'm going to learn a lot developing the workshop, but I'm, I also think it's quite important because because it's one thing to just share your code, but for somebody else to actually be able to rerun that code and get the same answer is quite another matter. So packaging it up in a container, like your software, your analysis, your data, I think is a really easy, straightforward way to, to practice open science. So that's what's next. This is two other scientists that you give the. Yep. So um, the container workshop I'll be giving at an open science in practice summer school uh, in Switzerland in September. Um, so everything I develop will be on GitHub. I'm sure I'll be incorporating other folks' um, tutorials as well because that's my favorite thing about open science is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Somebody else has probably already given a similar workshop, and if I can find that, I can adapt it. Granted, it has um, the right uh, license on it. Um, yeah. So you're giving it, is it you, the audience you're giving this to, uh, they're already yeah. on board with this. Um, but do you, do you find that there's lots of scientists, uh, like, do you think there's a lot of pushback against being open in science with, with other scientists? So, 
I don't get any pushback from early career researchers. It's definitely the more senior researchers that I get pushback from. And it's mainly just because, you know, they've been in the game for so long. They've got their way of doing things. It's obviously worked out for them. Why would they change the way that it worked? And it's not necessarily that I want them to change their habits and how they do science, but I want them to be aware of all of these new methodologies so that they can tell their group members and their students about all of this instead of just continuing on in the same closed um, manner. Um, so I think one of the one of the um, valid points that I've heard from senior researcher is just like you know I've seen all of these you know, trends kind of come and go, like they've seen like software packages, you know, come and go and stuff like that, but so they don't really trust like, like all of the different platforms um, coming on now to facilitate open science. And it's like, why would I learn something new if it's just going to disappear in five years from now anyways? Um, and that's valid, but at the same time, like, they probably started coming in Fortran and now you know, they've had to adapt and learn, you know, Python. So, like, if you're working in science, you're working in STEM or just research in general, like, you have to be able to adapt, you know. You know, these things are always changing. That's what research is all about. Um, so, I think having that closed mindset can be quite dangerous. So, if you're not able to change the way you work, fine. Maybe. Fair enough. But maybe don't, like, sound at those of us who are trying to encourage a positive Yes, and, and yeah, I mean, even so much under the mentorship and guidance of senior scientists. So, you know, like all these generations of scientists are also not being um, allowed to learn the open science um, approaches, or maybe, maybe not even hearing about it. Mm. I, I would say that converse sometimes that you know, you, hypothetically, one may have a, a supervisor who is very proactive or doesn't actually help you learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not only in terms of the software development side of things, which I think for any, any aspect of science would give an increasing abundance of data is more important, but even for kind of wet lab experiments, um, there's always going to be new stuff that's coming available. And like you say, as a fair point, you can't learn everything, and something will pass you by, but you need to be able to learn it. People need to be baby steps um, for people who are just getting started. So like one thing you can do, just make your data available. There's a platform called Zenodo or a platform called Figshare. You can just upload your data sets. Baby steps, first thing you can do, just link to it in your paper, done, sorted. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's open, quote unquote, um, like you still need to make sure it's got the right license attached to it so that other people can use it and build off of it. Um, but that can be your next step, is you can learn how to make your data fair. So findable, accessible, um, interoperable, and reusable. Um, and start incorporating those practices. Like, And then the next step you can take is maybe learning version control, learning Git and GitHub, and like slowly building up what's relevant to you in your field instead of you know getting it. Because it can be quite overwhelming because there's so much happening all the time. So instead of you know getting overwhelmed and not doing anything, just taking it you know one step at a time. I mean, open science isn't about the tool, it's about the practices. Exactly. And I think it's really important in changing the way that researchers are assessed. Because right now, 
is just counting publications and a publication can be about anything. It's yeah. a little crap. Um, yeah. Instead of you know being assessed on on the quality of the work involved, or if you know you teach, or if you mentor, if you bring a pocket blooming blues out, like mm-hmm. like it's not it's not all treated um, as much as if you know you've got a huge publication record. So it's all about shifting the research culture to to be more inclusive ultimately, um, because a lot of people get pushed out just based on publication records, and that's why it's. A bit of a homogeneous environment. <laughs> yeah, um, in my experience, that's like the people doing some bad science. Exactly. Exactly. You can't be on a podcast, but it's really fun to be really angry. It's a universal feeling, and it's really funny because I, I really only discovered like the open science movement, I guess, two years, like two and a half years ago now. Um, and when I started like reading up on it and like the development of it and like just reading about all of these experiences, I'm like, oh, oh, I'm not alone. I feel like crap all by myself. It's yeah. a general feeling. Let's do something about it now because this cannot go on. So. Yeah, it's nice to, to feel that it's not just you and your experience, but then it's terrifying to find out people generally. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. This one should be out on the 25th of 
um, we talked about things like our values, we talked about imposter syndrome, we talked about technical leadership skills, um, our personal brands, all this sort of stuff. And I came out the other side just feeling insanely empowered. Um, and one of the most important things I learned was basically just what my strengths were. So I think it's why we all sort of suffer from imposter syndrome is because we're so focused on our weaknesses and we compare our weaknesses to other people's strengths. Mm -hmm. And that's why we don't feel confident in what we do. And so on the first day of the program, we, you know, we had to take one of those personality tests and I think they're just totally bogus. Mm -hmm. But, but I, got, I got my booklet, it's, it's the Luminous Spark booklet, and it, it had this mandala with all of these colors, and it was beautiful, but I was just like, what is this? But it actually changed my life because it showed me that my strengths, you know, that I was people-focused, that I was, you know, logical and, you know, rational, like there were maybe some small spikes towards, you know, the red and yellow, but I was definitely a blue-green person, and just seeing on paper that my strength is that I'm people-focused really flipped the way that I was thinking. So I'm like, okay, I might not be the best, you know, scientist in the room, I might not be the best coder in the room, but I'm in tune with what people are feeling. And so, like, if there's a conversation happening or if there are decisions being made and it makes me uncomfortable or I can, you know, figure out if it's making somebody else uncomfortable, then I can say something. And I think that's actually really valuable. Mm -hmm. And so just actually seeing what my strengths were and focusing on those instead of what I'm not good at really just changed my mindset and I came out just feeling like loads better um, and like it changed how I worked and how I felt at work um, so I cannot recommend that enough Becky Taylor Tech Returners um, they're organizing a conference uh, in October uh, called Reframe Women in Tech and so it's basically about reframing the conversation about, about women in, in the STEM space because we do focus a lot on talking about the challenges women face, and that can create quite a negative conversation sometimes, and it can put women off from entering tech. Um, so what, what she wants to do with this conference is reframe it to showcase role models, talk about all the good stuff going on, and just change the conversation. So that's Reframe Women in Tech, October 28th, 2019. Um, yeah. Any other people you So I have to shout out um, my mentor and supervisor, Professor Anna Skate. I think she's been mentioned on this program yeah. before. Oh, she did. She has. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dave and I worked together before we went to INREX. Um, she has been insanely supportive of me throughout my entire career, and I definitely would not have been in academia this long if it wasn't for her. I would have left after my PhD. <laughs> Um, but she's been so supportive. She's the one who sort of turned me on to open science um, and has allowed me to like really like see out this journey um, and has supported me in all of the science that I put in as well. Um, and then just a few shout outs to people in Manchester. Kirsty Devlin is doing amazing stuff. Uh, Faye Agape and Code um, and stuff as well. Um, the, the weekly uh, coding space for women and non-binary uh, people in tech. And then... Yeah, Innovate Her, Open Data Manchester, all doing amazing stuff. And then, of course, Pi Data Manchester. Ooh. I mean, I honestly think you guys are absolutely killing it. Um, and I said this ages ago. I, I apologize, I haven't been to a meetup in a while. But one of my favorite things that you actually did was have a meetup in a coffee shop. I thought that was mm -hmm. really inclusive, really nice. 
um, it was our it Christmas presentation. Yeah. I thought that was really wonderful and just um, generally your focus on being inclusive and, and doing all of these different things to help get more people involved. I think it's really wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> oh my gosh. We can make every guest. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned as well people on projects, but is there any, anything else? Anything else? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could quickly say one more cheesy thing. There is a cartoon of me in the <laughs> National Museum of Science and Media in Bradford. Wow, um, that's very cool. They have an exhibition called Hello Universe, where basically they're celebrating the, the Apollo, the 60th anniversary of the Apollo missions. Um, they've got loads of stuff that they've dug out of their archives, like old um, paintings and drawings of like the planets and observations. They've got models and statues and newspaper clippings and all sorts of stuff. And they very kindly um, asked me some questions. They went to a school, had school children ask, ask questions about space and star formation stuff. So there's a cartoon of me in the museum holding a clipboard answering some of those questions. It's, it's absolutely outrageous and <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I, I love it. That's amazing. All right, well, thank you so much <laughs> for being our seventh episode guest. This has been really fun, um, really interesting. Um, as usual, everything mentioned will be on the show notes. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>